Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to my colleague, Ched Spellman, about uh, the canon of scripture, how it informs biblical theology, some pedagogy that he uses in teaching biblical theology to students that I find really helpful and that I have uh, begun using in some of my teaching as well that uh, hopefully will be helpful for you. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ched. Church Grammar is presented by B&H Academic. You can go to bhacademic.com to find out about all their uh, latest offerings, including new one-volume American history textbook from Thomas Kidd, as well as some books that are forthcoming, including Baptists in the Great Tradition that will be edited by Chris Morgan, Matt Emerson, and Luke Stamps that I think you'll find interesting. So go check that out, bhacademic.com. And our other presenting sponsor is the Christian Standard Bible. It's an English translation that is faithful to the original languages without sacrificing clarity. Go to csbible.com to find out about more about that translation and about some of the new study Bibles they have out, including the Tony Evans Study Bible, the Ancient Faith Study Bible, and plenty more for women, kids, and children. So check that out. And now, my conversation with Chet Spellman. But first, no big deal. All right, I'm here uh, on the campus of Cedarville University with my colleague, Chad Spellman. Chad, I was going to have you on the podcast at some point anyway, but now that our offices are literally around the corner from each other, I figured if I bothered you enough times, I could just talk you into walking over here with me to the studio and doing it. So, Yeah, that's good. I'm, uh, I'm thankful, grateful to be here uh, with the Kanye of evangelical podcasters. <laughs> Is that a compliment? or a, uh, you, you can you consider that a compliment? Want, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, he is a Christian now, so we've got, we have that going for us. That's good. So at least you said I was a Christian. Yeah. All right, so the two things I really want to talk about today primarily are canon and biblical theology. So these are two things that you have published on. Um, you have a, a book coming out with Kriegel, Invitation to Biblical Theology, with uh, one of our other colleagues, Jeremy Kimball. And so I want to talk through those two things particularly. I think you have a uh, very helpful uh, perspective on canon and biblical theology, and particularly you are well-versed in kind of both fields. Um, canon studies has become sort of a, uh, has sort of a resurgence in evangelicalism, uh, mm-hmm. as of late. Uh, so actually at the, uh, the IBR meeting, uh, this year, you'll be doing a paper at the biblical theology section with some others on canon and the relationship of biblical theology. So I thought, uh, it'd be helpful just to frame some of that. So why don't you talk first about, um, canon consciousness. You have, you know, the book toward a canon conscious reading of scripture with, uh, uh, Sheffield Press. Uh, so talk through a little bit sort of what you're doing in that book, what your idea is of canon consciousness, why why we should read the Bible canonically, those kind of things. Just talk through some of the basic foundational arguments there. Okay, great. Um, I was going to say also to a uh, first-time uh, caller, long-time listener of the show. <laughs> I've always missed, wanted to say that. So. You missed your opportunity. <laughs> yeah, so. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at us. Look at us. Yeah, who'd have thought? Um, yeah, so in the the book, uh, the Sheffield Phoenix book, um, part of what I was doing is thinking about uh, the relevance of canon studies for uh, an evangelical doctrine of scripture. That was kind of the starting point. Um, re- read several works um, thinking about the uh, the nature of the canon debate, in particular canon formation, the way that the Bible formed, um, and does that? how does that impact uh, the way that we read scripture? And uh, can an evangelical high view of scripture handle uh, the 
nitty-gritty of the canon formation process. So that was kind of the, the starting prompt uh, to this. And so part of what I'm thinking about in the book is the different ways that you can approach the canon. So as you mentioned, canon studies is a pretty broad field. Uh, so you can think in terms of uh, history, historically, how did the canon form, how did it come to be, uh, and how is it received uh, in the early church and beyond. Uh, so a lot of uh, canon studies revolves around answering that question. That's like Kruger or John Mead. Some of these guys are doing that kind of work, right? Um, right. So thinking about um, the way that the um, the, the canon was re- received, uh, the way that um, uh, later uh, communities are uh, recognizing what the process they're going through of the process of recognition. Um, and so in, in each of the, you know, evangelical scholarship on canon uh, oftentimes, f- sometimes focuses on the historical question, uh, but obviously uh, the scholars you just mentioned are also thinking about uh, theology and the implications um, uh, for how we understand the scriptures as well. Uh, but th- yeah, so think there's different ways to approach it uh, historically uh, and also theologically. Um, what is the theological impact of limiting our understanding of who God is to these particular books. Um, so history, historical and theological angles um, are important thinking about canon. And so part of what I was uh, considering is the hermeneutical uh, side of canon studies. So thinking about uh, what meaningful effect does it have or what impact does it have on whether or not we read a particular writing Within the shape of a, within the context of a collection, so those are those three areas: history, theology, and hermeneutics. Um, so part of what I was uh, thinking about is the way that uh, the form, the relationship between the formation of the canon to the function of the canon. So moving from a historical study of canon to a uh, hermeneutical study of canon, uh, thinking about the the shaping of the canon, how it comes to be. Uh, and then the effect of that shape. Uh, so the, just in brief, I don't know how f- much you want me to get into the actual argument of the book, but um, thinking about the way that the canon formed, um, that's the first part of the uh, book, is just thinking about canon formation. How you define canon uh, is going to have an impact on the way that you think that it came together. Uh, so thinking about the relationship between canon and scripture, um, uh, so part so part of what to do is thinking about the given the fact of canon, uh, what function does it have for a reader? Uh, so after uh, thinking about the history of the canon uh, and the way that the the final form that we have, uh, most of the book is thinking about uh, what does it mean? What do we mean when we talk about the context of canon? So chapter three is talking about. Um, the canonical context uh, in the chapter four is uh, talking about intertextuality, the connections that are generated by reading individual writings within the shape of the collection. And then the last chapter is thinking about what does it mean to be uh, the ideal reader or implied reader of biblical writings. Um, so part of what I'm, I want to say is using the concept of canon consciousness, uh, just basically an awareness of canon. <clears throat> If the uh, if canon consciousness was a legitimate category as the biblical texts were being written, 
Um, and then also those who were uh, the believing community that was gathering those writings together uh, also had a form of canon consciousness, uh, then it would be a appropriate thing for contemporary readers or, or later generations of readers to also have a canon consciousness. Um, so that's kind of the, the in really broad strokes, uh, thinking about is there a way that we can think think about canon consciousness at the composition level, the canonization level, and then also the reception of the canon. So, so what would be an example of, of a biblical author demonstrating in the text canon consciousness? Yeah, so um, just a kind of a quick, uh, broad understanding of like what canon consciousness is. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, one, the awareness of a larger body of literature, uh, other writings. Uh, so if a biblical author is writing with an awareness of uh, a uh, a collection of literature and sees uh, his writing in relation to that. So we talk about biblical authors writing in light of other scripture. Um, so this idea of an awareness of a uh, literary collection, uh, but also an awareness of the authority of that collection. So the two kind of senses of canon being part of a broader collection, but also being part of an authoritative uh, body of literature. And then this idea of uh, the function of a particular writing for future generations of readers. So if a so so to find that idea in uh, the composition phase, so a biblical author uh, writing in light of uh, uh, a broader collection. So the e easy examples are the prophets writing in light of the law or the Pentateuch or the New Testament writers writing in light of the Old Testament. So part of what um, I'm doing or thinking about is kind of drawing out some of those implications uh, that are well established uh, that the New Testament authors are writing in light of a collection that they view as authoritative, uh, the Book of Moses, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Uh, for example. So that would be a, a broad example of uh, Matthew as the author of the gospel, uh, a gospel narrative uh, writing in light of uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings uh, would be a, a, a quick example of uh, what I'm thinking about as canon consciousness. And then the theological side of that is asking the questions, did the uh, biblical authors uh, view their own writings as authoritative or connected to that uh, broader collection. Uh, yeah. And would you say that's obvious in the text that they do, that the New Testament authors realize that they are continuing Israel scriptures or they are uh, using these other texts as almost like a defense for their own writing? Or how would you describe that? Yeah, I mean, I think the part of what uh, we can discern is in the shape of the biblical writings uh, as the biblical authors are composing their books, uh, they're um, doing so uh, in light of uh, the Old Testament. So we can see that from actual uh, intertextual references to the Old Test Testament, uh, but also just in the way that they shape their books, um, signaling that the story that they're telling about uh, Jesus, as, Jesus as the Christ uh, is one that began in the beginning. Um, and so that awareness I would include kind of in this uh, broader concept of uh, do the biblical authors see themselves as participating in um, this process that, you know, previous biblical writers uh, began. Yeah, so do you think about 
things like where Peter calls Paul's writing scriptures and these kind of things where there's clearly some sort of self-awareness that what they're doing is bigger than just writing letters. Right. So that would be uh, a classic example of here's uh, Peter uh, referencing a specific letter of Paul, but then also referencing um, a collection of Paul's letters. He talks about Paul's letters uh, and then associates it with uh, the other scriptures. So that would kind of qualify. That's a um, classic example of this idea of uh, Peter writing in light of not only Paul as a, a fellow apostle, a co-worker in the gospel, but also writing his letter in light of in light of um, other writings by Paul, and also envisioning kind of a um, the beginnings of a collection of Paul's writings uh, that are uh, viewed as authoritative. Uh, so those would be kind of the components that um, you'd be looking for when you're thinking about canon conscious compositions in the New Testament, for mm -hmm. example. Yeah, and so you talk a lot about compositional strategy as well in terms of, uh, you know, John says, look, I, you know, if I had written everything Jesus ever said and did, all, you know, you couldn't fill all the books in the world, but I wrote this, you know, get, Luke says I wrote an orderly account, I went and interviewed people. And so there's clearly some selectivity to what they're writing. They could give you more, but they choose to give you only certain things. So how do you... Um, in a, you know, quote unquote, canon conscious reading, if you're just reading that kind of stuff and you're aware of the fact that John is um, not wasting a word or not wasting a chapter or whatever, we're not wasting a story, but has this purpose. Um, how does that kind of filter down into sort of practical hermeneutics and just like how you're reading? Like, is there a uh, particular benefit to being aware of those things? How does that work? Uh, just if you're anything from a seminary student or pastor is preaching it to somebody who's just reading it, what are some of the implications there? Yeah, that's an uh, excellent question. I think that part of what it is, uh, as you're thinking about uh, theological themes within uh, the Bible, within the New Testament, for example, you give an example of John, uh, starting to think about uh, biblical books uh, as, uh, are thinking about the shape of biblical books as a whole. So not only just selected passages from the Gospel of John, uh, but thinking about what is John doing at the book level. So thinking about book level meaning, I think, is important as we're thinking about the context of canon. What is John doing uh, from beginning to end? Um, and so passages like that at the end of John are helping us see that the biblical authors are writing with a specific purpose. Um, and so that there's a compositional strategy that uh, cuts across the entire book. Um, so that that helps us as we're thinking about how does the crucifixion uh, relate to resurrection? Um, how does Jesus's uh, teaching ministry relate to his life and death? So that's part of the function of the gospels. The shape of the gospels are is are drawing those things, uh, those elements together. Um, so the uh, the shaping of the author on the book as a as a whole uh, kind of mirrors. Uh, the effect of, of canon as we're thinking about the big picture of the New Testament, for example, um, we're allowing the shape of those uh, biblical books to kind of to norm uh, and shape our understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, the life and ministry of the early church and the apostles, uh, and uh, to the end of days is being shaped by uh, the message of these biblical books. Yeah. So how do you, uh, another thing that, that comes up in canon studies a lot is sort of, um, you know, the order of the books themselves. So, you know, you might read um, 
Ruth and Proverbs differently if they're in different orders, right? You might see the Proverbs 30 woman, 31 woman as Ruth if it were in a different order or whatever. Um, how does that, do you think that that impacts our reading a lot subconsciously, or do you think that that's something that's kind of overblown in canon studies, or what's your perspective on some of that? Because I've seen a lot of work on sort of the Catholic epistles, you know, Darian Lockett, the Catholic epistles, as a, as a collection, read them as a collection, even though they're these disparate books, there's a sort of message or something you can get from it. So how do you kind of get involved in all that kind of stuff and what you're talking about? Um, yeah, I think the um, the issue of ordering is a, certainly part of thinking about uh, the canonical context of uh, the canonical context of the uh, the biblical writings. Uh, one of the things I like to think about is uh, when we're thinking about the canonical context in this uh, chapter three of of the book. I was thinking in terms of uh, the way that it impacts how we read uh, when we go to when we go to characterize the big picture of the Bible. Uh, the the shape of the collection has some sort of uh, impact on us, uh, subconsciously or consciously, uh, hermeneutically, as we're thinking about what is the flow of redemptive history, uh, for example, the the big story of the Bible. Um, we often, or we sometimes don't recognize how much the uh, canonical context is shaping and norming that already, uh, when we think of, uh, tell, me the his- tell me the story of, uh, of the New Testament. It's like, well, the uh, the priorities given to the life and ministry of Jesus, and then we move to the uh, the way that the apostles carry on the ministry of Jesus and the role of the Spirit among the churches uh, until He comes. It's like part of that uh, the, that easy way that we think about the uh, the shape and message of the New Testament as as a whole um, is influenced by the fact that we're we're accessing the story through this particular collection of text. So thinking in terms of uh, contextuality or canonical textu- contextuality, the canonical context, um, two, two broad categories when we're thinking hermeneutically of first, uh, mere contextuality and then mint contextuality. So mere contextuality is, is a way of thinking about uh, the effect that reading and individual writing in light of a collection has on us uh, regardless of our position on how it got to that point. Um, so if we're reading um, a biblical book within a context within the context of a collection of writings that we view as authoritative, uh, it's already uh, playing a role in our uh, understanding where uh, the canonical context puts pressure on us uh, to relate uh, gospels and epistles or uh, when we read the book of Acts, it puts pressure on us. Uh, to consider the relationship between Peter and Paul, um, even before we start considering the relationship between Paul's letters and Peter's letters. And so that would be an example of the effect that canon is having on us, um, even if we're not making a specific argument about uh, book ordering. Um, so then, so mere contextuality is just thinking about the hermeneutical effect uh, that uh, a collection has. And then mint contextuality is thinking about those places uh, in the uh, in the scriptures uh, where we can see a biblical author um, guiding or directing us as to how we should understand uh, the sh- either the shape or the nature of those uh, collections. Um, so, for example, we have already talked about Peter's comments about Paul, uh, but also Paul's letters letter within the context of. Uh, 
a burgeoning letter collection. Um, so th thinking along those th those lines, as we're you know we're seeing Jesus uh, and uh, Luke talk about uh, the law and the prophets, or the law of the prophets and the Psalms. Uh, so these the internal evidence for the shape of the collection uh, would be something. So thinking about mere contextual contextuality and mint contextuality is kind of a way of uh, being able to account for the hermeneutical effect of canon. Uh, even when uh, we're not making a specific uh, argument about uh, genetics or how these things came to be the formation of that, but also recognizing that there is that there is a connection. Uh, so if we're thinking about uh, big examples, you mentioned Ruth, uh, but things like if we read uh, Chronicles uh, directly after Kings in our Bible reading plan, we might um, consider Chronicles just redundant, um, the synoptic problem of the Old Testament. Um, as we're thinking about what impact does it have uh, reading Chronicles directly after Kings, maybe we think it's uh, redundant or it leaves things out, it omits things, or it's just the leftovers uh, of from Kings. Um, and it leaves some of the most exciting parts out, perhaps uh, from Kings, uh, Elijah and Elisha, uh, this kind of uh, moving back and forth between the North and the South. Uh, some of those things are absent from Chronicles. Uh, so th reading this uh, right after Chronicles in terms uh, in Kings uh, might have a a particular way of kind of influencing us as we uh, think about the big picture of that section of Scripture. But if we're thinking of Chronicles as uh, one of the final books written, uh, positioned toward the end of the Hebrew Bible, for example, the Old Testament, uh, seeing it as the last word uh, of the Hebrew Bible, um, then that that's going to have a, a perhaps a, a different way for us to understand the function of the book, uh, almost as a narrative commentary. Uh, the, the first word being Adam, from Adam to uh, the return from exile, um, kind of anticipating this end, um, especially in, in relation to uh, the promise, the Davidic covenant, uh, this focus on helping us understand and explain some of the emphases uh, that show up in the book of Chronicles, uh, the, a story of messianic hope and not only a regurgitation of a history that is uh, more robust or uh, extensive. Mm -hmm. So that would just be some broad examples of the type of thing that you're looking at when you're studying like canonical context and the possible impact that it has um, you know, on the way that we read. Yeah, and so we want to be careful not to psychoanalyze biblical authors, right, and just sort of try to uh, assume all of their motives and all of their and what their library looked like and what they were reading and all that kind of stuff. But obviously in the text you can see some of these things. Um, how do you relate Revelation to all this? Revelation is a clear capstone to the canon, and it's eschatological you know, elements and things like that. But at what level do you think John was self-aware of his writing of a of – a, the end of the canon or mm -hmm. the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. You know, he's clearly quoting Isaiah and Ezekiel and uh, Daniel all the time. So he clearly sees himself as doing something in line with them. So how do you, how do you uh, view his text particularly and how much do you think he was aware or conscious of his own place in the canon and what he was writing? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that, uh, just even drawing on the categories we drew on before, uh, thinking about uh, mere contextuality, uh, seeing that when Revelation 
is the final uh, book of a particular collection, it's going to have this impact um, where it's summing things up, uh, kind of a culminating capstone, finishing out the narrative elements of the New Testament. Uh, so there seems to be an appropriateness to that. It's, it seems to be fitting. So that would be mere contextuality. But then the question you're asking, uh, was it? it's not only fitting, but perhaps it was fitted uh, to hmm. be uh, at the, the final uh, word, the last word of the New Testament. So things, looking at things like there, in terms of uh, the Old Testament, uh, as you kind of alluded to, uh, when you seeing things like the vision of the end uh, that is provided at the end of Revelation, echoing the beginning, uh, moving from creation to new creation, um, uh, many of the biblical theological um, categories or uh, institutions like you ha- you see uh, new New Jerusalem with you know the holy city the tabernacle the garden imagery all mm-hmm. coalescing tree coalescing in that, yeah. yeah tree of life without a curse um, this idea moving towards uh, not only culminating uh, the collect the you know the final entry in the collection but also culminating the development of what the presence of God has meant uh, from the beginning um, so seeing the Seeing the end anticipated in the beginning as you're reading through the Pentateuch and seeing the end, um, uh, the beginning uh, echoed in the end, um, I think is a part of a feature of the canonical context. When we read a collection that begins with Genesis and ends with Revelation, uh, the connections, uh, the intertextual connections that are there um, uh, jump off the page at us. Um, and so we're able to see those things. So as we're thinking about John in particular, if we're thinking about John as the Apostle John as author of uh, Revelation, the Gospels, and his uh, epistles, um, that would that would also be uh, a consideration of thinking through. Uh, John is writing clearly in light of Old, Tes- cle- uh, Old Testament texts, uh, foundational Old Testament texts. But as author, he's also writing in light of Gospel and Epistle. Um, and seems to uh, draw upon uh, in telling the story of Jesus in his uh, vision of the end. So those are, you know, the use of the Old Testament, the use of the New Testament, right. uh, the, the Old Testament, the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, the New Testament's uh, drawing upon the the New Testament. And so th- that would be an example of uh, some insight uh, that we can see just from thinking about Revelation as the final entry in a collection, but also considering thinking about uh, in uh, mint contextuality, thinking about uh, is John uh, intentionally drawing upon uh, strategic parts of the Old Testament canon uh, and drawing upon uh, other New Testament writings or traditions uh, that would make it appropriate for it to function as at the end. So that's the kind of the broad, if, if John is writing in light of uh, these other writings within the collection, those who are receiving uh, and gathering and collecting these writings together uh, might be following not some sort of arbitrary scheme, uh, but thinking carefully about the nature of the, the content of the literature that they're um, passing along, the groupings that have... Uh, uh, been passed down, and thinking about the relationship between those groupings. 
Yeah, um, like you said, fittingness <laughs> is an interesting way to think about it too because it does seem like you can't read Revelation. Like Revelation wouldn't make sense anywhere else in the New Testament but where it is because of sort of the, you know, like I described to the students, like we kind of think about we live in the Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 world, you know, and so we kind of live in light of the fact that Genesis 1 and 2 existed, that it happened, that there was no sin. And then Revelation 21 and 22 is sort of the culmination of that. So how do you live in light of eternity? Mm -hmm. You live as though Revelation 21 is already here or as though Genesis 3 never happened. Right. It's almost one of those things where like if Revelation were anywhere else, it wouldn't make sense in the biblical story. Like you can move some other things around Mm -hmm. in the text, but if Revelation were like right after Acts, it would just feel weird, you know, just feel like completely out of place. Right. Yeah, and I think part of the uh, part of what's going on in the formation of the canon is the importance of groupings. Mm-hmm. Um, so ordering is is part of the discussion for sure, but um, I think uh, just as important is this idea of grouping. So if we're thinking about the uh, grouping of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the Gospels, part of what creates and generates the canonical effect of the Gospels is the fact that they've been grouped together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is, you know, patterns in the manuscript evidence as we see um, fragments from uh, two Gospels uh, and not, um, you know, Gospel, uh, Gospel, Epistle, Revelation, Acts. Right. Uh, so thinking about this, that it's being received and passed along within these things. So that's part of what I think is uh, significant too when we're thinking about the formation of the canon related to the function of the canon. If the canon forms uh, through grouping, so if a quote-unquote book enters the New Testament not as an individual book but as part of a grouping, then all of a sudden what seemed really arbitrary, like even just thinking about the New Testament, 27 books uh, that just somehow happened to like an etch a sketch. You shake it up; it looks a little different. <laughs> well, I guess if you shake an etch a sketch up, it doesn't look like it anything. Like anything but, at all, yeah, yeah, it's a bad analogy. Uh, but just like a bag of marbles that you just throw on the floor. Uh, but part of what we're what we when we're talking about the canonical context, we're talking about the grouping of groupings. Um, so when Acts, for example, is uh, being composed. Uh, once Acts is uh, part of the collection uh, that you are uh, uh, reading, uh, it has an orienting feature. The, you know, the Gospels go on one side, the Epistles go on the other side, and the Revelation comes at the end. Um, so I think one of the areas of, of research for the shape of the New Testament is the, the function of Acts uh, within uh, the New Testament in relation to Gospel, in relation to the Catholic epistles or Paul. Um, so that, that I think or, ordering is important, but sometimes uh, the focus stops with ordering. And I think the effect of the groupings in the New Testament, law, prophets, writings, um, thinking about the, in the way that we characterize those things. So mm-hmm. what's the difference between thinking about the historical books versus the prophetic history? Um, seeing Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, as characterized as uh, as prophets, the prophetic history versus a genre, the historical books, where we're doing a chronological um, sequence. Uh, whereas here you might be thinking, oh, this is the way that God is working in the world with his people, or a history of the nation of Israel. Um, when we get to the prophets, we're expecting to learn something about who God is, what God is doing in the world, this mm-hmm. you know, revelation. And so, thinking about the uh, what we 
often talk about as historical books as part of the prophetic history uh, perhaps changes some expectations mm-hmm. that we have when we go to those books. Um, so I, I would, uh, I always try to think in uh, broader terms, not only specific uh, ordering sequences, though that is important, uh, but just thinking about the effect of canon. Um, uh, we're talking about the way that uh, groupings are functioning, the way that genres are related to one another. Um, I think all of that um, is part of this discussion about the importance of, of canon for you know, evangelical biblical interpretation. So. Okay, so let's shift a little bit to biblical theology. We kind of dabbled in it because it's kind of hard to talk about the things we talked about without doing a little biblical theology mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, but one of the taxonomies you've been using for a long time that I think is really helpful with students is this idea of uh, canon, the covenants, and the Christ, right? It's sort of like this taxonomy or this uh, outline for how we talk about biblical theology. So talk through that a little bit, um, how you kind of came up with that idea. I mean, obviously you got it from the text, but how you came up with that idea and what you're, you've been trying to do as you're teaching through that sort of... Uh, yeah, sure. I, I think part of the struggle is that sometimes we have is thinking, how do these uh, academic discussions relate to the way that we actually read? We've kind of already started to talk about some of those things. Uh, but just thinking about the relationship between canon or the canonical context and biblical theology, um, <clears throat> part of the a feature of the academic discussion of these disciplines is the definitional quagmire of what is biblical theology, mm-hmm. what is canon. Um, and those are important. Uh, those are important discussions because they kind of uh, dictate the way that we uh, kind of understand the importance of them. Um, so one of the things, thinking about biblical theology uh, as a discipline, one of the um, one of the important discussions, as I just mentioned, is the question of definition. Um, so thinking about uh, the importance of having a biblical theology framework. Um, so that's kind of how I characterize kind of an approach to biblical theology. Uh, what is the framework you're using to understand uh, the big picture of the Bible? Um, so thinking about the ways that you're able to kind of get a handle on what biblical theology is, is thinking not only in terms of like a particular theme or a center of biblical theology, but a framework within which, uh, you do biblical theology. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, BT framework or biblical theology framework of the canon, the covenants and the Christ, uh, is just kind of a way of, uh, drawing together, a lot of the a lot of good work that evangelicals have done on the on the canon uh, and in biblical theology kind of just draws those things together. But for students uh, thinking about a terms of a framework that includes the canon, the covenants, and the Christ helps kind of pull things that uh, are already being affirmed and uh, directly relating them to one another. Uh, so thinking about uh, all of those, uh, you know, the the storyline. Uh, the grand storyline of the Bible, the covenants, um, uh, central themes uh, that are traced across the canon or through history. Uh, All of these are kind of features of the biblical theology discussion. And so part of what, um, part of what I'm I'm trying to help uh, students see is the relationship between those things. Um, So the canon uh, obviously, being kind of a starting point of the uh, seeing the when we approach the scriptures, we approach it uh, within a uh, canonical context. Mm-hmm. So, kind of pointing that out and some of the implications of it, 
And if we're thinking in those terms, then one of the things that we immediately encounter are the many narratives uh, uh, that we find in the in this particular collection. Uh, so depending on how you're counting, uh, something like 70% of the uh, biblical texts are some some form of narrative. So it's thinking about what effect that that has on the way that we understand the big picture. Um, so thinking about the canon generating a narrative storyline, uh, and in that storyline, um, the covenants are the heart, the heartbeat of that uh, storyline. As we move through uh, those narratives, uh, there's a focus on this relationship that God has with His people. Uh, and then as we make our way through the biblical storyline, we keep encountering uh, biblical covenants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thinking about those covenants themselves uh, and their relationship to one another is often uh, a way of describing um, God's purpose for humanity, uh, what God is doing in the world. So telling the story of the covenants um, is directly related to telling the story of the canon. Mm-hmm. Um and then showing how those things uh, culminate in Christ. Uh, so the canon generates a narrative framework, uh, a grand storyline of the scriptures, and that grand storyline um, is directly related to uh, the covenants, the biblical covenants that uh, are found uh, in the storyline. Uh, and one of the things uh, that uh, that provides is that when we answer, ask questions like, what? Is the whole Bible about Christ, or what is the uh, what do the scriptures say? Uh, what is the message of the Bible as a whole? Uh, that framework can uh, that's kind of norms the way that we talk about those things, uh, the way that uh, we tell the big picture the uh, of the big picture of the Bible from beginning to end. Um, and so those those features as a framework, uh, then within that framework, uh, we use uh, some tools. Uh, to help us uh, get a handle on on those those different aspects, so the canon, the covenants, and the Christ uh, are a way of uh, kind of setting the trajectory. What is the Bible all about? Well, it's a collection of uh, a collection of texts. It's canon. Well, what is the story that the uh, canon is telling us uh, that we find there? Well, it's a story of the covenants that uh, culminate in Christ. Um, so that's kind of, uh, I think, the uh, effect of the framework. It sets our expectations about what the Bible is, but also what the Bible does. Um, so uh, thinking in these terms is also just a way of thinking about uh, a focus on the gospel uh, requires uh, what we are talking about in biblical theology. Uh, so thinking about um, phrases like, uh, the gospel is a story that takes two testaments to tell. Um, thinking about how would you unpack that? Right. Well, you you need to talk about the canon. You'd need to talk about the covenant story, and you need to talk about how those things relate to the Christ. Um, so thinking about evangelicals are very comfortable talking about the whole Bible is about Christ, but then you listen to <laughs> several different people talk about that, and you realize, well, they're, they're doing very different things sometimes, mm-hmm. um, or it seems like it. And I think the... Uh, the difference there would not necessarily be theological, the theological affirmation that the Bible is about Christ, but it would be hermeneutical. Uh, not that the Bible is about Christ, but how is the Bible, the whole Bible, about Christ? Um, so thinking about, um, in light of this framework, uh, seeing how the whole Bible, the, the canon points to the Christ, 
uh, but also seeing the ways that Christ points to the canon when Jesus is talking about the law, the prophets, the Psalms, uh, and even using those designations. Uh, and then also seeing how the covenants point to Christ um, in their different ways and as, uh, as a unit, but also seeing the way that Christ points to the, to the covenants. Uh, the biblical authors are utilizing uh, the son of David, son of Abraham uh, language to speak about the Christ. Um, so even thinking about uh, when Paul says uh, in 2 Timothy 8, um, that he's talking about uh, remember Jesus Christ, uh, risen from the dead, descendant of David. And he's connecting those things to the gospel that he's preaching. Um, so I think the, a way of biblical theology as a discipline that helps helps us grapple with that question, that the gospel is a story that takes two testaments to tell. So a mini biblical theology, in Jesus, New Testament, the Christ, Old Testament, risen from the dead, New Testament, descendant of David, uh, Old Testament. Uh, so thinking along those lines, and even the last words of the resurrected Christ in Revelation, at the end of the vision, before he says, I am coming quickly, he says, I am uh, I am the descendant of David, mm -hmm. uh, the bride and morning star. Um, and then right before that, he says, uh, this is the, uh, the messenger uh, in John uh, who has sent these, this message to the churches uh, until he comes. So here you have the resurrected Christ um, speaking about what is essentially New Testament and referring to a promise that takes the entire Old Testament uh, to unpack and understand or make sense of. Um, so you have this remarkable uh, unity uh, between uh, both ends of our uh, our canon. So unpacking that uh, is, I think, part of what the discipline of biblical theology is all about. Yeah, and it's uh, interesting because it kind of just dabbles back into the canon conversation a little bit. But when you're talking to students or people in church or whatever about sort of um, how the Bible fits together. I mean, the Bible is so self-referential, right? So it's like the Old Testament is always looking back at the covenants. Remember what was promised to Abraham. Remember what God did at Sinai. Remember, you know, and then like you said, Jesus seems to pick up on that same thing. The New Testament authors are clearly assuming that they are writing the story, that, that Jesus is the culmination of the story because they don't know how to make sense of him otherwise in a sense, right? Like he, I was telling students uh, just yesterday, we were talking about even the Trinity and kind of Christ fulfilling the scriptures and what does this mean for God in the flesh and all that. And one of the big things I was trying to get across is the idea that like when you read the New Testament, you're reading a bunch of guys who know their Old Testaments, they know their Hebrew Bibles, and they have Jesus walking in front of them, fulfilling all of these things that they've been waiting for somebody to fulfill, and even exceeding those expectations by doing things only Yahweh does and things like that, right? So like the scripture itself, the framework that you use is kind of the self-referential language that the Bible itself uses for itself. It's like, how do I make sense of this? Well, you have to think about what God said to Moses at Sinai. You have to think about what God said to Abraham to make mm -hmm. sense of even the Old Testament, much less Christ. So, Right, yeah, I think that's uh, a good way to put it. Um, w we talk about the importance and this really important uh, principle of Scripture, interpreting Scripture, um, but that's not just a, a hermeneutical or a theological principle that we kind of just uh, use as operative. There's a reason why, of course, uh, we're thinking in those terms. And so one of the ways I like to describe that is that the biblical authors are also biblical readers. Right. Um, so uh, when we're thinking about the uh, the way that the uh, scriptures relate to one another, 
uh, part of what we're doing is part of what we're able to do is follow the guidance of the biblical authors right. themselves. Uh, so we talk about New Testament use of the Old Testament, but it's also uh, coherent and fruitful to talk about, uh, as some have said, the Old Testament use of the Old Testament. Right. So the the prophets and poets of Israel uh, speaking about what God is doing in the world uh, in light of the the um, the promises, uh, the poetry. Uh, in the narratives of the Pentateuch, um, so th- those are th- those are that reality carries forth um, not just as we see redemptive history continuing, but seeing the way that the Book of Moses uh, is impacting the way that biblical authors are conceiving of what they're doing. Right. Um, so not only is M- Moses in the history of Israel important, but Moses's book. Um, as biblical later biblical authors are not only drawing on the book of Moses, but they're also doing what he has done, uh, which is shaping biblical books that include both narration and interpretation of what God is doing in the world. And that has an impact on how we understand uh, the world of the text and how it relates to uh, the world we're living in, that those things are the same. Okay, so I could talk about this all day, but we're running low on time. So we need to talk about something that's very important to you, which is memes and puns. Okay, yeah. So um, for a long time, I was... I feel like we're in a meme right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was uh, from a distance for a long time, um, leaving snide comments on your Facebook and Twitter about your puns and how much I didn't like them. Yeah, my... my, What dominated... uh, your responses to me were gifts that said boo or uh, <laughs> groans, uh, mm-hmm. digital groans. So I have a particular one of, a, of uh, it's like a college football or basketball game where this one guy with this like little kind of short fro is yelling boo. And that's like my go-to for puns. So I have like different, different ones that apply to different types of booing. Yeah, yeah. And that one was my Ched's puns boo in particular. Okay. And it's now made its way that. into, you know, broader things. But now I have to, um, you know, be your colleague and get along with you. And so... I have to uh, accept you for who you are and <laughs> yeah, take the them civil from politeness yeah. uh, so that we can uh, coexist. Yeah, which is, you know, it's, it's working. I think it's working yeah. well. <laughs> I think our look friendship is flourishing, <laughs> which is, look at that. Who would have thought? Yeah, not me. No, not me. <laughs> okay, so, but you, but what's really funny though is that there's like this deeper level in which you have a whole philosophy about the pedagogy and the function of puns and memes in teaching and in uh, theology and social media. So talk through your philosophy of puns and memes. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, uh, thinking about uh, one, one of the reasons it's, you know, the utilitarian reason it's a, a, a low-risk form of humor. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, no one, you typically won't get fired for uh, playing, you know, making a pun. Uh, you might get fired from conversations. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think uh, part of what uh, I like to do in class uh, is just you know, it's not necessarily you know specific puns or jokes, but just kind of playing, playing with words, uh, just kind of signaling. You know, if we're th- talking about the the pedagogical function of paranomasia, um, <laughs> when we're thinking about uh, signaling, uh, when I'm teaching uh, and leading students uh, through you know whatever we're talking about, to part of what I want to communicate is. The, the seriousness which with which I take the gospel and the subject matter. We want to be very serious about what we're studying, uh, but I also want to communicate that I'm not taking myself here very seriously. Um, and so kind of that, that kind of dynamic, I found that um, 
you know, puns and, uh, you know, lighthearted moments. They actually have a pedagogical function uh, as we're thinking about we're sledding through an hour and 15-minute uh, course, mm-hmm. uh, uh, working through the textual features of the beginning of the Book of Acts or something. Um, so a lighthearted comment, you know, you know, for students, they're like, oh, he's just going off on a tangent for a few minutes, but... Um, then they realize, oh, you know, it, if you're talking about it, it's like it gives some space uh, for a classroom discussion. Um, and then often, you know, the good a good use of rhetoric involves like this this playfulness where, you know, you're climbing up and down the ladder of abstraction where, oh, you're just talking about, you know, this funny story about your daughter or a, a dog or something. Um, and then all of a sudden, like you're speaking directly to my heart and like <laughs> now I'm my, I'm rent open. Um, so, you know, those, the, those are, those are some of the, the ways that I think uh, humor can help uh, teaching and preaching. Um, so we're sledding through the beginning of the book of Acts in class this week, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about how um, I'm glad that we're here because uh, we're going to talk about one of the most uplifting passages in all of Scripture. And they're like, oh, what is it? What are we talking about? And it's like, uh, well, uh, the first narrative in uh, Acts, the, the ascension, mm-hmm. Right? is a very uplifting passage. But then that leads into a discussion of um, the sometimes neglected role of ascension in our theology mm-hmm. and our understanding of, of Acts and Luke, of seeing what is the function of the ascension account at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, uh, and how important that is for our theology of uh, Christ's high priestly uh, role, uh, how important it is for our understanding even of eschatology, that he'll, he'll come the way that he has left. Uh, so th- it creates a, a, that creates a moment uh, f- for us in class as we're um, highlighting the importance of that I had a student uh, a few years ago. I was like, well, I was trying to think of the um, the ascension and where it showed up in in class, and I remembered because of your dumb joke. <laughs> um, so, so it has that kind of a mnemonic device as well. Um, so when I talk about the um, prophetic pessimism pertaining to the people at the pinnacle of the Pentateuch, <laughs> uh, right? Well, that in in some ways, it, you know, it gets a good laugh, and you know, I, I kind of rap it sometimes. Uh, but in another sense, that actually is one of the riddles of the Pentateuch. Why is, why is Moses so pessimistic about what the people are doing, uh, right? This prophetic pessimism. Um, so just, you know, th- those are some of the ways that, you know, <laughs> puns or play on words uh, function, other than creating fodder for my academic hip-hop album that will drop at some point. It's coming soon, yeah. And your YouTube your YouTube channel, <laughs> which I don't know, have you introduced students to your YouTube channel yet? Uh, it's kind of like a, a cult following, or <laughs> a, kind of underground. Every once in a while, uh, someone will come across it, you know, so it gets kind of rediscovered every once yeah, in a while. My favorite so. was when you, you put the new one up of I Want a Rap, and it was you eating a rap. Uh, and, right, yeah. uh, the fact that you said, you know, based on demand from tens of tens of views. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> yeah, we are, I mean, it's a big moment for my channel. I mean, we are, I'm around 90, 95 followers from hitting that triple digit follower mark. Mm. So well, after this podcast, just some food for thought. we can yeah. make you a YouTube celebrity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You quit Cedarville. Just go and start making your videos. Which yeah. That's what you really want. Right? Yeah. That's, I'm just, uh, that's the long game. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, Chad. Well, thanks so much for taking some time to talk through this with me. All right. Thanks. Thanks.